John chapter 5 and beginning in verse 18. Let's hear God's word. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is God's word. It does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. So many people believe and think today. This is because we live in an age where the current doctrine of our world is technically called postmodern relativistic pluralism. Or if that is a bit too much for Sunday morning, you could think of it as PRP. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Postmodern relativistic pluralism. This means that most people today take the following three things for granted. One, there is no absolute truth. Two, tolerance means accepting the truth claims 
of other faiths. And therefore, three, to say that Jesus is God and the only way to God is therefore intolerant and perhaps dangerous. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. But while the reason for questioning whether Jesus is God is new today, postmodern relativistic pluralism, PRP, even in Bible times, many people objected to the claim that Jesus is equal with God. In fact, that is exactly what is happening in our story from the Bible this morning. You'll remember from last week that uh, Jesus had just healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. But he healed him on a Sabbath. And the religious leaders at the time, uh, the Pharisees, objected to him healing on the Sabbath. When uh, John's Gospel talks of the Jews, he often uses that as a shorthand for the Jewish leaders or the, the Pharisees. Well, they objected to him healing on the Sabbath, and Jesus has replied that in the same way that God is always at work, so he is also always at work too. And the Pharisees understood that by this Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, and so he wanted to kill, uh, they wanted to kill him for what they took to be blasphemy. He had broken their ancient religious doctrine by saying Jesus is God, similarly to how today, if you say Jesus is God, you break the current postmodern, relativistic, pluralistic doctrine. Imagine how hard it would have been if, uh, for a traditional Jewish believer schooled in the most strict doctrine of God's oneness ever devised to be told that Jesus, walking around in, in right there in front of, the, of them, that Jesus was also God. Well, how did Jesus respond to their offense at him? And is that response a credible response to the challenge of believing that Jesus is God also today. Uh, Jesus is replying. Uh, verse 19 could be literally translated, answering therefore Jesus and said. Or as the King James Version puts it, then Jesus answered. Jesus is replying to uh, their offense at him claiming to be equal with God, really from now until the end of chapter 5. He's preaching to them in response to their um, uh, question, their offense that he has claimed to be God. He's answering their objection. And there are actually two sections. In the first section, the section we're looking at this morning, he gives them reasons for believing that Jesus is God. In the second section, which we'll look at next week, he gives them evidences for believing that Jesus is God. 
So if you have ever wondered whether it is credible to believe that Jesus is truly God, that in absolute truth he is God, if you ever wondered that or you have friends who do, then this will all be very relevant uh, to you. Jesus is uh, making the case that everyone can have good reason for knowing that Jesus is God. And he actually gives nine reasons for that. I'm not going to go through them all. I'm going to summarize it in two overarching overall reasons. But let me mention those nine reasons for you at least. Who God is in his essence, verse 19. The love of God, verse 20, the first part. The miracles of Jesus, the second part of verse 20. The resurrection, verse 21. Judgment, verse 22. Honor, verse 23. The word, verses 24 to 25. Life, verse 26. Judgment again, verses 27 to 29. Now these nine reasons are really in two parts. And um, this morning I'm just going to summarize how everyone can have good reason for knowing that Jesus is God in two parts. First, God and Jesus are one. Second, God's word and Jesus' word is also one. First, God and Jesus are one. This is from verses 19 through to verse 23. And Jesus there uh, repeats again that, he, 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 that Jesus the Son is doing what God the Father is doing. And, well, how are we un- to understand this? And he supports it with three arguments that God and Jesus are one. By the love of God, the miracles of Jesus, and the resurrection power of Jesus. All to show that God and Jesus are one. I was uh, present at uh, the time when D.A. Carson gave uh, his illustration for the, uh, the Trinity. Uh, it was there in Cambridge University, and uh, D.A. Carson was preaching to a group of students, and I was there when he used this particular illustration. D.A. Carson was in conversation with a Muslim uh, PhD student who was wrestling with this Christian claim that Jesus is God. How can Jesus be God and God the Father also be God? Uh, Don, uh, isn't one plus one plus one three? Don't you believe in three gods? And uh, D.A. Carson's response was this, yes, but infinity plus infinity plus infinity is Infinity, and I believe in an infinite God. It's a very good reply. But Jesus here is going even deeper. He is saying that it is by the love of God that we can know that God and Jesus are one. Do you believe that God is love? If you do believe that God is love, if you are being rational, logical, you will necessarily believe in um, the Trinity. Let me explain this uh, concept of the love bond of the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the following way. It influenced some of the greatest Christian theologians, including Augustine and Jonathan Edwards. If we believe that God is love, 
then we're really logically needing to believe in a tri-unity in God. So the Father loves, verse 20, the Father loves the Son. Well, he is love from before creation. But who does he love before creation? The answer is he loves himself. But love by its nature needs to love another. So if we believe in God's love, we need to believe that there is another person in the oneness of God. The Father loves the Son. And as Augustine and Edwards in different ways both taught, that love is the love of the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God and Jesus are one. We can know this by the love of God. God loves. Who does he love before creation? The answer is he loves himself. And therefore, there is not a strict monist unity in God. There is a one God and three persons, Father loving the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. But then there's also the miracles of Jesus. These works of Jesus, as Jesus calls them here, the signs in John's gospel, that is the the healing of a man uh, lame for 38 years, turning water into wine. In these, we are seeing the divine inaction in his orderly created world. Now, this is a great challenge for many people today. And the reason for that is because philosophers, since uh, the great Scottish philosopher David Hume and atheist David Hume, philosophers have argued that no matter how many miracles are performed and no matter how much evidence there is for such miracles, miracles are by definition the kind of thing that does not happen and therefore they did not happen. So the thinking is this, we live in an ordered world, a scientific world. We know that the rain does not fall up. We know that each day the sun sets and uh, rises the next morning. And therefore, however much evidence there is for miracles, miracles are by definition the kind of thing that cannot happen. This is why scientists often wrestle with the idea that, that Miracles happen all the time. How can that be the case if we do good work as science? How can that be the case if we live in an ordered world? How can that be the case if if there is such a thing as gravity? Surely miracles do not happen. But that is to misunderstand what miracles are. Miracles are not the violation of the scientific order of the universe. They are the expression of the order of the maker of the universe at a particular and special moment in time. And that is why even in the Bible, miracles do not happen all the time. Uh, Miracles cluster around the great events of salvation of God. They cluster around Moses when God's people were rescued from Egypt. They cluster around Jesus and the apostles that he sent. Miracles 
are not the violation of the scientific order of the universe. They are the expression of the order of the maker of the universe at a particular and special moment in time. And so we can know that uh, God and Jesus are one by the miracles of Jesus and then by the resurrection power of Jesus. These are the greater works of which Jesus speaks here that will be done. And by that he means when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, as he will in a little bit in John's gospel, and when, of course, Jesus himself is raised from the dead. Now, each of these, the love of God, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus, each of these show us that Jesus is acting as only God can act. And therefore, reasons to believe that God and Jesus are one. Actually, today, uh, uh, science is increasingly uh, getting to a position where such uh, belief constructs are more and more acceptable, even within the constraints of contemporary science. The latest theories in physics, string theory, uh, the multiverse, they mean that science today is rethinking how it can prove facts. As one NPR report concluded, even if a theory predicts entities that cannot directly be observed, if there are indirect consequences of their existence, we can confirm then those theories that they must be included in our considerations. In other words, some things are true, even if you cannot personally yourself see that they happened. You know they are true because of the way they make sense of other things that you already know. By the love of God, the miracles of Jesus, and the resurrection power of Jesus, God and Jesus are one. These are things that only God can do, and therefore God and Jesus are one. Or as uh, C.S. Lewis put it, I believe in God in the same way that I believe in the Son, because by it I see everything else. And so that God and Jesus are one makes reasonable sense of the love of God, the miracles of Jesus, and the resurrection power of Jesus. But not only can everyone have good reason for knowing that Jesus is God because God and Jesus are one, but also, second, because God's Word and Jesus' Word are one. And this is from verse 24 to verse 29. And here Jesus gives three supporting reasons to show that His, His Word and God's Word are one by the Word of Jesus, the life-giving power of Jesus' words, and the judgment authority of Jesus' word. We can know that God's word and Jesus' word are one. And this word of Jesus has great power. So verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is extraordinary power. Anyone who hears Jesus' word and believes truly in Jesus' word, right then 
And there, at that moment, passes from death to life. They move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Their eternal destiny is forever changed. Such is the power of Jesus' word. No other word could have that power other than God's word, the word of God that spoke all of creation into existence, now speaks new creation into existence. Such is the power of Jesus' word. And uh, so powerful is it that even non-Christians often recognize the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching. Uh, Gandhi uh, said he was almost a Christian because he was so struck by the power of Jesus' uh, uh, doctrine, his word, his teaching. So there is then also life-giving power in Jesus' word. Verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This life-giving power in Jesus' word is something that I heard a professor at an Ivy League school with a group of other Christians and chaplains and pastors talking about this and saying that he was struck by the life-giving power of the Bible. And I'm not sure that professor would believe everything that, you, that I believe about the Bible. But even for that Ivy League professor, he recognized that there was something unique and life-giving and powerful about the teaching of Jesus in the Bible, the life-giving power of Jesus, because in Jesus there is the source of all life in Him and therefore in His Word. And we can know that God's Word and Jesus' Word are one because of the judgment authority of Jesus' Word. So the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment, verse 27, so that all who are in tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus has already said that if we hear his word and believe his word, we pass from death to life. And so when he says now that those who have done good rise to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, he is speaking of the whole person kind of faith that trusts in Jesus and that necessarily leads to a life of discipleship and good deeds that are the inevitable fruits of such personal trust in Jesus. And so as he concludes the set of reasons that everyone can have good reason for knowing that Jesus is God, he's turning the tables on these Pharisees. The Pharisees have been complaining that he's made this audacious claim that he's equal with God. Not only complaining, he's violated their ancient religious doctrine of the oneness of God. And therefore, they have sought to judge him and indeed are now seeking even more to kill him. They are standing over him in authority. And what Jesus is saying is, no, actually, the authority is entirely the other way around. There is great moral authority in Jesus' teaching and his word, such great that when the dead hear his voice in the tombs, they will live. Surely we all know this by experience. We know this power of Jesus' word by experience. Who else taught like this? No other man spoke 
thus. Consider the teaching of the Pharisees. Who among us could remember a single thing that the Pharisees ever taught? And yet consider the teaching of Jesus. A farmer goes out to sow seed. It is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The kingdom of God is like. This is the power of Jesus' word. No other man ever taught like that. that. Why? Because he was not a man only. He was the son of God. God's word and Jesus' word are one. And therefore, everyone can have reason for knowing that Jesus is God. So is it actually absolutely true that Jesus is God? Yes. Everyone can have good reason for knowing that Jesus is God. God and Jesus are one. The love of God, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus. Jesus is acting in a way that only God can act, and therefore God and Jesus are one. God's Word and Jesus' Word are one. By the Word of Jesus, the life-giving power of Jesus' Word, and the judgment authority of Jesus' Word, therefore He is speaking as only God can speak. And therefore God's Word and Jesus' Word are one. Everyone can have good reason for knowing that Jesus is God. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is absolutely and truly God? Or is it just your truth and not someone else's truth? Billy Graham uh, told the story of uh, a World Series baseball game. It was the seventh game in the World Series, and the scores were tied, and uh, it was the last inning, and the last player came up to bat. And there he was, and he hit a home run, which I believe is a good thing to do in baseball. The crowd goes wild. He runs around, he comes to home base. And as he gets there, the umpire shouts, out. The crowd is stunned. And the umpire explains he never touched first base. What about you? Do you truly believe that Jesus is God? It is necessary so to do to be saved. He is not one among many gods. He is the Lord and the Savior. And would you therefore do what Jesus says? You cannot pick and choose from parts of the Bible you like and the parts you do not like. Why? Jesus is God. His Word is God's Word. Would you therefore worship Jesus? 
The thrill we sense of the scale and size of the universe is as nothing to the thrill we will sense at worship when we realize that when we worship Jesus, we are worshiping the Creator God of all. This is not Wheaton's God. This is the God of the entire universe. And would you therefore tell others about Jesus? This Jesus is not simply one among many other deities, one among many other divine beings, one among many other faith options. He is the very true God, one with the Father. And therefore we must tell our neighbors and the world about Him. Let's pray together. And would you stand with me as we bow before Jesus? Our Lord, we worship you as God, not as our truth and not someone else's truth, not as one possible construct for the various options of building meaning in people's lives, not as a cultural artifact, not as a representation of how we are brought up in a Christian home, not as an expression of being an American or from a Christian country. We worship You, Jesus, as God. We bow before You. We ask, Lord, that by Your Spirit, You will therefore renew in us delight in you and duty to serve you as King of kings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.